So everybody loves a good story. Have you ever had that moment where you're maybe listening to a good storyteller or maybe you're reading a story and at some point it was as if you left the room and you were there. You could see it, the way the author was describing the scene and the situation, it's like you were there. You see, an author's job is to get the reader beyond the words on the page and to help them see and feel the story. In order to to do that, an author's job is to show you rather than tell you what's going on. You see, telling is just a simple narration of the facts. But when an author gets into showing, what they're doing is bringing those facts to life so that you can really see it and feel it. Mark Twain famously said, Don't say the old lady screamed. Bring her on and let her scream. Or take the advice of Natalie Goldberg. Don't tell readers what to feel. Show them the situation and that feeling will awaken within them. Here's an example of the difference between telling and showing. So here's an example of telling. The taller man was a carpenter, complete with the tools of his trade. Now here's an example of showing that same scene. A saw and a hammer dangled from his belt and a series of chisels filled out his pouch. His hands were calloused and worn. And when he took off his cap to to wipe his sweat-covered brow, wood shavings from the day's work fell to the ground like misty snow. Do you see the difference? One just tells you there's a carpenter there. The other one shows you and you can picture him there. This morning we're looking at Genesis chapter 12 and we pick up the story with the life of Abram. And it's a story that answers the question, what does faith look like? And rather than simply telling us about faith or giving us a definition of principles, facts about faith, we're shown what faith looks like. And what's interesting, one of the things I just love about the Bible is that the Bible gives you the whole story. See, the Bible never presents these heroes of the faith as these perfect people. Rather, we find that they're flawed. They're works in progress, just like you and me. And they have days when their faith is strong, and they have days where it seems like the fires of faith have dwindled down to a few smoldering coals under a heap of ashes. And Genesis 12 is no different. In verses 1 through 9, we're going to see this positive example of faith. We're going to see God come to Abram. And it seems like he's just the picture and model of faith. Going as God commanded him, believing and counting his life in, uh, 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 towards all of these promises of God. And then right after that, in Genesis 10, uh, 12, 10 through 20... We see this negative example where it seems like disbelief and distrust and anti-faith are fueling all of his decisions. And so right here in this one chapter, we get a picture of positive faith, but we also get a picture of anti-faith. We have a picture of belief and disbelief, trust and fear. And as we work through the story this morning, I'll give you some principles of faith and anti-faith, but then show you how the story models those. And then together we'll look at how we can live a life of faith as well. So let's start together in verses 1 through 9 to see what faith looks like. 
Now, before we get into the text proper, I want to remind you of where we've been so far um, in our study of Genesis. We've been walking through Genesis as a, as a church family, and we've looked at Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And it covers all of human history from Adam to just right before this point where we meet Abram. And in the beginning chapters, we saw that God is the maker and sustainer of everything. However, our once very good world full of potential and meaning and purpose and enjoyment with God has been hijacked by sin and rebellion. And we heard in the midst of that rebellion in Genesis 3.15, this promise of God that one day God would send a seed of the woman who would come to bring an end to the rebellion and bring peace and restoration, and that that deliverer would be this wounded warrior. As he stepped out to crush the head of the serpent, he also too would be dealt a fatal blow. And every chapter after Genesis 3, instead of meeting this wounded warrior, instead of meeting our rescuer and our deliverer, it only gets worse. But we know in the midst of the downward spiral of humanity, there still remains hope because there's this line of promise, this line that you can trace from the woman from whom the seed will come. The line of promise remains intact and with it, the hope of a deliverer remains alive. That's Genesis 1 through 11. And that's the suspense of the narrative as we come to the end of chapter 11 and move into chapter 12. Because we're introduced to a new character named Abram. It would be very difficult to overstate the importance and significance of Abram and Abraham who he'll later be called in the storyline of the Bible. In fact, Genesis 1 through 11, in those chapters, covered more than 2,000 years of human history. And now the next 10 chapters are going to cover about 25. You go from 2,000 years to 25. That's the equivalent of going from light speed down to a crawl. And this dramatic slowing down brings the focus in on this one person and his family. And the question is why? It's because through Abram and his family, God is going to rescue and restore his broken creation. It's as if the, the, uh, Moses who's writing this says, I'm going to slow down because I don't want you to miss what's going on. If you read Genesis 1 through 11, you'll find that the created order is cursed five times. That because of sin and because of sinners, there's a, a curse placed on created order. But in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we're going to see the word blessing come five times. Again, if we're paying attention, it's a literary hint to the reader that there's coming a day when the curses of the fall will be swallowed up by the blessing that is to come through this family. So what do we know about Abram as we go into chapter 12? Well, we get a little snippet of him in Genesis 11. And we learn that Abram is the son of Terah. He's a descendant in the line of promise. Now you might think just knowing that, that Abram and his family have remained faithful to follow the one true God. However, we learn in the book of Joshua that Abram and his family served other gods. Look what Joshua writes about them. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, 
Your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. They served other gods. You see, though they're members in this line of promise, they've lost sight of the God of promise. And they've started to worship and serve the gods of Ur, where they live. And this gives us a startling reminder that every single person needs to make a decision for themselves to know, love, and follow God. Just because your descendants are believers, just because your parents are believers, just because people in your family are believers, it doesn't automatically make you one. Faith is not transferred biologically. Each person has to come to a personal decision to follow God. Now we also know that Abram is from the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was a major metropolis in the land of Babylonia. It would have been the equivalent of a New York City in the ancient world. Full of technology, full of prosperity, buildings, vast beyond measure. If you had showed up to to Ur in the ancient world, it would have been like driving in and seeing New York. Just endless buildings and people. We know that Abram is 75. He's married to Sarai. And unfortunately, they've never had the joy of welcoming a child into this world. And that's what we know about Abram as we step onto the scene in chapter 12. In these first nine verses, we're going to see what faith looks like. And I'm going to give you three principles of what faith looks like and then show you with the story. So here's our first principle if you're taking notes. Faith believes and obeys the word of God. Faith believes and obeys the word of God. Look with me at Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you see God comes to Abram, tells him to leave his home in Ur. And with this command, he gives him a series of promises. First, God promises to give him land. He says, to go to the land, I'll show you. Now, I know for many of us, we hear the promise of land and we're just unimpressed. We're like, oh, land, that's, that's great. I'd rather you just give me the money. You know what I mean? Let me do with it what I will. What good is land? That's because for many of us today, land doesn't hold the same value like it would have for most people who've ever walked the face of the earth. We don't typically form strong allegiances to land, nor do we feel a dependence on land because we can just go into Market Basket and get everything that we need, right? Within a few box stores, what good is land, right? But this is a recent phenomenon. For most of human history, land is everything. It's everything. Without land, you're nothing. Land is incredibly valuable. Land is where you go, what you need to build an identity. It's what you need to to build a foundation for a future. If you want to dig deep roots, if you want to grow food, if you want to provide a foundation to build a life for you and future generations, you need land. Can't do it without it. God promises to give him land. Second, God promises to give him seed that will grow into a great 
nation. By seed, he means offspring, children. Now remember, I told you Abram is 75 years old and his wife is barren. At this point, they've given up on having a child, let alone a family line that will grow into a great nation. Now this Hebrew word for nation doesn't mean like some tribe or some city-state. It means a powerful geopolitical nation. It would have been something that kings and descendants would, would come together from his line to form a powerful nation. God promises him a nation will come from him. Third, God promises to make his name great. Now this is remarkable uh, because if you, if you take Genesis 12 in light of Genesis 11, do you remember what we find in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel? And do you remember the whole point of this tower and this great city was to do what? To make a great name for themselves. And so in the Tower of Babel, you have them trying to make a great name for themselves. But God comes down and thwarts their efforts and their, their whole purpose in making a great name ends in futility. But here in Genesis 12, God says, I will make your name great. And we find out that greatness is something that God gives to those who follow him. See, God is great, and he can dispense and give out greatness. Greatness, then, is not something you and I achieve by the works of our hands, but something, rather, that we receive by the grace of God. God promises to make his name great. And fourth, God promises to bless him, and through him, the people of all nations. What does it mean to be blessed by God? Well, to be blessed by God is this intersection where you are pursuing God and seeking his glory. And it intersects with God's provision and life and relationship to him that leads to thriving and flourishing. That's what it really means to be blessed. Not not apart from God, but in relationship with God as you're pursuing him. And in that relationship, you're coming alive and he's providing for you and you're thriving and flourishing. And God says, Abram, I will bless you and not only you, your family, and not only your family, but through you, the peoples and families of all the earth. So in summary, God is promising to give him land to build a future, that his seed will grow into this mighty and great nation And that there will be this blessing that comes to him and goes through him so that all the people of the earth are blessed. It's an incredible array of promises. Now I want you to think for a moment about the power of a promise. Think about it. One moment before a promise is given, you have no expectations of anything. Nothing exists. But then a promise is extended to you. Perhaps you've been the recipient of great promises before in your life. And what happens is, is in the the wake of a promise, expectation is created. Hope is created about something that is coming and a longing for that which is promised. And in that moment, what do you have to do? You have a decision to make. Will you believe? Will you trust in the promise. Will you trust that this promise maker will be good to keep their promise? 
Let's see how Abram responds in verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord told him and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. See, later in Genesis 15, the Bible will tell us explicitly that Abram believed and it was credit to him as righteousness. But for right now, we see Abram's belief displayed by his obedience. Remember our principle? Faith believes and obeys God's word. God told him to go. Here's these promises. And Abram went. He believed. And so he went as the Lord told him. Abram went as the Lord told him, believing that God would make good on his promises. Later in the Bible, we get to Hebrews eleven eight, And the writer says, by faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. God called him to go. God made promises to Abram. And by faith, he obeyed. The writer of Hebrews also gives us a good definition of faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Do you see Abram's faith on display? God promised him an incredible array of promises, and he left all that he knew with a steadfast hope that God would make good on those promises. It takes a heart-level conviction that God can be trusted and to walk out in faith. That's the first thing we see about faith, that we're shown about faith, that faith actively responds to the revealed word of God. God said, go, and Abram went. Now today, the way we do that as believers is by responding to scripture, which is the revealed and recorded word of God. I find it remarkable. Many people come to me today and say, pastor, I want God to speak to me. As I'm reading in my Bible, I, I see all these people that, that, that God comes to me and he speaks to them. And I long that God would speak to me. And often one of the kind of responding questions I ask is, are you frequently reading his word? And not all the time, but very frequently people will say, well, no, I'm not reading God's word. You see the disconnect between those two things? Because the primary way that God speaks to us today is through his written and revealed word of God, which has been preserved for us in the scriptures. I'm not saying that God doesn't still speak to us today. I'm, I'm saying he does. But one of the primary ways he does that, and one of the ways we can learn his voice is by studying the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. My friends, God has given us his word, written it down so that we can access it anytime. We're encouraged to meditate on it and to consume it so that it changes and shapes us. And often I think we think, that if we were to hear the audible voice of God, that it would be more awesome and more real than the revealed written word of God. But I promise you that the saints of old would, have, uh, would see what we have here in the collected scriptures and would long to have what we have here. They would have longed to have God's revealed word 
for them in its abundance to read and to meditate and not have to wonder, was that my conscience or was that the voice in my head? Was that God? Who was that? That you can know, no, this is the word of God. Let's be a people of the word because faith believes and obeys the word of God. Number two, faith orders priorities to follow God. Faith orders priorities to follow God. This point is seen in verse 1 when we consider all that Abram had to leave behind. You remember what God said? He said, leave your country, your kindred, and your father's house. Now again, at first glance, this doesn't seem like a big deal to us. Why? Because our culture is hyper-mobile. We travel the world. We move around. It's common now for people to live great distances from their birthplaces. We're not necessarily a rooted people anymore. But in this society, this is unheard of. To go from their land, to leave their kindred, meant leaving roots, it meant leaving security, and it meant leaving provision. See, people would live in these tight-knit kind of family clans, right? And, and, And to leave this clan and to go out on your own carried an incredible risk and very high social costs. This triad of country, kindred, and father's house, that would have given Abram his sense of identity and security. It would have been all that he would have known. He knows the language. He knows the culture. He knows the customs. To leave what you know is incredibly difficult. Not only that, but at this time in human history, there's no such thing as Geneva Conventions. There's no international law. It's like the Wild West out there. And there are these kind of so-called pirate kings out there. They basically amass an army and, and swords and they've declared themselves kings. And they go around pillaging villages, taking livestock and possessions and making people slaves. We're going to meet some of these pirate kings later on in Genesis. And to leave your network of security, to leave your, uh, your family was a very risky endeavor to be captured and killed by these pirate kings. And Abram knows full well that he is being asked to leave behind every security system and support he's ever known and to become a peopleless stranger in a land he doesn't even know. At this time, Abram is uh, essentially living the ancient equivalent of the American dream. Before he leaves, or he, minus having a child, he's living the dream. He's surrounded by family and friends. He's in a major metropolis with all the comforts that the city has to offer. He's wealthy. He's secure. Comfort, convenience, security, and influence. And God tells him, leave your uh, expensive apartment on the Upper East Side and go to a land that I will show you. And he's just supposed to leave it all behind. What I want us to see here is that God is asking Abram to reconsider and to reorder his priorities to follow God. When we jump forward to the New Testament, we see that that doesn't change. When Jesus meets his first disciples, they're there fishing. What does he tell them to do? Leave your nets and come follow me. He's saying, leave behind your small business and come follow me. He tells Matthew, the tax collector, 
Leave tax collecting and come follow me. When Jesus meets Paul on the road to Damascus, he tells him, stop persecuting Christians and come follow me. Luke 14, 25 through 33, Jesus teaches us to count the cost of following him and be willing to forsake it all to follow him. He says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, so therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Do you see what Abram's faith is showing us? Do you see what Jesus is teaching us? Faith orders priorities and values to follow wherever God leads. That's principle number two. Principle number three, faith trusts and worships God despite the consequences, but uh, despite circumstances. Faith trusts and worships God despite circumstances. Look with me at verse five. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now let's stop right there for a second. The Bible says that Abram set out with his wife and with Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions from Haran. Now Haran is a different city than Ur. So what are they doing in Haran at this point? Well, if you kind of piece together the biblical narrative, we find that the original call to Abram came when he and his father were still alive and they lived in Ur. Uh, Genesis 15 verse 7 explicitly says as much. Stephen's sermon in the book of Acts says that the call came to Abram when they were in Ur. And so what happens is, is they, they get this call to leave, to leave, to leave Ur uh, when they're living in, in, in Ur. And they start heading out to uh, Canaan. And we see that in, in chapter 11. That they started to head out for the land of Canaan. But it says that they stopped in Haran and settled there. For whatever reason, Terah decides he doesn't want to go any further. Maybe Terah is not fully convinced of the promises of God. Maybe Haran was just a nice place to live. Whatever the reason, they stop on their journey to Canaan and they settle in Haran. And Abram, he's not quite ready to leave his father behind and so he stays there with him. But the Bible tells us that after Terah dies, Abram leaves Haran and they continue on this mission towards Canaan. And the Bible tells us that with him, Abram takes the people they had acquired. Now when I first read that, I just assumed that meant slaves or maybe indentured servants. But when you look a little bit further and look closer, the word for the people here is the Hebrew word nephesh. Nephesh means souls. And when you look throughout the, the Old Testament, this word nephesh is never used to refer to slaves and indentured servants. And so what is going on here? It can't refer to their children. They don't have them yet. So who are these people that they have acquired? And this expression is most likely referring to proselytes or converts. So what does this mean? It means that while they were in Haran, Abraham had started sharing the good news of the blessing of God. Abram had started to tell people that they met, here's where we're headed, here's where we're going. We have met the one true God and he is going to bless me and he's going to bless others. And he'd started to share the good news of a God who wanted to dwell with his people. 
he had started to share the good news of a God who could be trusted, who was generous and good. And despite his father wanting to stay in Haran, Abram didn't give up on the promises of God. Despite his circumstances, despite that they had settled there, he uses that time to start sharing the good news and he gained a following of people who will share in the promises. It's remarkable. Now look at verse 6. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. That's important to remember. This isn't an empty land. There's inhabitants. Verse 7. Then Abram appeared, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. In verse 9, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now when Abram gets to Canaan, he goes to Shechem in the north. He goes to Bethel on the west, he goes to Ai on the east, and he goes to the Negev on the south. And what do we find him doing? He's calling upon the name of the Lord. He's worshiping God. And what does he do? Do you remember? He builds altars in each of these places. He's staking claim to the land. So each altar kind of becomes like a flag in the ground that says, this is Yahweh's land. Now, what do you think about the people living there? Do you think they're going to look upon this favorably? That here's some guy coming in, staking claim on their land, not worshiping their gods, but worshiping his God, building these altars on their land. See, those people would have seen these altars as a threat. Who is this guy? What does he think he's doing? Who is this God? And who do they think they are coming into our land, setting up altars? But despite the inhabitants, Abram trusts the Lord and worships him without regard to what people will think and what they will do to them. Do you see what's happening? His faith is overflowing into trust and worship. See, a faith that doesn't trust and a faith that doesn't worship isn't faith. Faith isn't simply a cognitive understanding about reality. Faith goes beyond the cognitive and begins to consume the heart. And then it overflows in trust and worship. It's both an allegiance to and an affection for God. So what does faith look like? Well, first, faith believes and obeys the word of God. Faith also orders priorities to follow God. And faith also trusts and worships God despite the circumstances. Now let's look at the second half, verses 10 through 20, to see what anti-faith or disbelief or unbelief looks like. Next verse, verse 10. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So Abram's in Canaan, we're told a severe famine hits the land. Now when this happens, this famine is actually an opportunity for Abram to display his faith, to deepen his faith and trust in God despite the circumstances, despite the fact that it's a severe famine. 
Does God tell Abram, go to Egypt to get food? No. He makes that decision on his own. And so he leaves this land of promise. He leaves the land of Canaan to go down to Egypt. And what I want us to see is in verse 10, his faith is under trial. There's a hard situation. And Abram starts to doubt the promises and provision of God. Look what happens next in verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know you're a beautiful woman. So far, so good, right? Men, always good. Compliment your wives. This is great. But when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they'll kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. He went from awesome, praising his wife, all the way down to the dregs. Men, never give up your wife. This is not a high point for Abram. That's not the point of this sermon, but that's a good one to write down, guys. Do not give up my wife to people. He knows that when they enter the land, that there's a chance that these princes of Pharaoh will want to take Sarai captive and kill Abram. But instead of trusting the Lord's promise that he would have a son by Sarai, he devises a cowardly plan. You see, he should have done this. Listen, I know they may take her. I know that happens often, but God has promised that I will have a son through Sarai. And so nothing is going to happen to her. We are literally invincible right now. God has promised I will have a son. And so until that happens, nothing can happen to me. Motivated now by self-preservation, not faith, he makes this plan to give up Sarai. And we find that his plan works. When they get to Egypt, Abram is spared. Do you hear what he said to her? I'm going to give you up so it goes well with me. Not sure what's going to happen to you, but it will go well with me. He's motivated by self-preservation. And when they get to Egypt, Abram is spared and Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's harem. And not only is he spared, but in verse 16, we see that Abram is compensated for Sarai. He's given livestock and food and servants. So he personally, materially gains from this exchange. Now see what happens in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away and with his wife and all that he had. We find the Lord intervenes. He sends plagues to the house of Pharaoh so that the truth comes out and Abram and Sarai are are reunited and they get to go back to Canaan. Here's what I want you to see in this episode. Famine came to the land, which was an opportunity for Abram to double down on his faith. But instead, what happened? Doubt, insecurity, unbelief creep in And he starts to make decisions consistent with anti-faith and unbelief. Think about it. He doubts the promises of God for land and seed and blessing. Think about the movement in this story. I think Moses has written this in a way to help us see that. 
Think of the movement away from the promises of God. What happens at the very beginning of this episode? He leaves the promised land and he heads for Egypt, which in the Old Testament is never a good idea. Bad things happen when you go down to Egypt. He gives up on the promise of a child, right? He gives up Sarai to save himself. So instead of trusting in the blessing and provision of God, who does he put his trust in? He puts his trust in Pharaoh and the provision of Pharaoh. Abram was supposed to be a blessing to the nations. And now what happens at the end of the story? He's a curse to the nations as Pharaoh and his house are afflicted with plagues. All the promises of God in the first section are coming undone in this second section. And I think this episode is carefully being written to show how decisions consistent with unbelief lead to a path of destruction. And the first uh, episode we see that faith believes and obeys the word of God. In the second section we see anti-faith disbelieves and disobeys God's word. Where faith orders priorities to follow God, anti-faith orders priorities toward self-interests. Where faith trusts and worships God, Despite the circumstances, anti-faith distrusts God because of circumstances and turns to false idols. Do you see the the, the difference in these two episodes? So friends, what are the famines that might come into your life? What are the trials and the situations and the circumstances that you might might, uh, face that's going to put your faith in jeopardy, that it's going to try your faith, where you're going to be tempted towards disbelief and disobedience and doubt? What are the famines that tempt you to distrust and disbelieve the promises and word of God? Maybe it's financial setbacks. Maybe it's a situation at work. Maybe it's family turmoil. See, Anything can come into our life, anything that threatens comfort, anything that threatens your identity and your security can tempt you to doubt and disbelieve the provision and promises of God. And it's in these situations that we need to lean into God's word and believe, not walk away. Thankfully, this episode reminds us That just because we might abandon God or we might fail to believe his promises, that God doesn't abandon those who falter in their faith. Praise God for that. Despite Abram's descent into Egypt and his failure of faith, God remains faithful to him. God intervenes. God steps in to course correct Abram, to save Sarai, to save this line of promise and to get him back into the promised land. And as we come to the end of this episode, we're left again with the longing. Abram is not the Christ. He is not this wounded warrior. He cannot be this coming deliverer. And so once again, we thought maybe it's Abram. Once again, our eyes are on the look for the one who is coming. And it will take the rest of the story to tell the story. And that's why Hebrews 12 is so helpful after giving us all these examples of, of faith in, in, in Hebrews 11, albeit imperfect faith, the writer of Hebrews tells us who to look 
4, he says to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The same faith that Abraham had, the same faith that needed perfecting, it's Jesus who perfects our faith. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's all these great cloud of witnesses, these, these heroes of faith who've gone before us. And they, with their imperfect faith, what did they do? They looked forward to the one who would come to bring perfection to their faith. And friends, we know that his name is Jesus Christ. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is when temptation and trial come, the, the weight that would weigh you down when sin, when sin seems to cling so closely... The writer of Hebrews says, lay it aside and run with endurance the race set before you with one steady gaze. At the end of the day, when you're going, what is the one thing I need to do as a Christian? This is it. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Everything else pans out. He rammed the perfect race for you and me. He went to the cross with joy, knowing that he would die for you and me. And then he would rise again to bring our faith to completion. And he has given us one exhortation. Look to him. Seven Mile, let's look to Jesus and with faith believe and obey his word. Let's look to Jesus with faith so that our priorities would be reordered in line with him so that we may follow him. And friends, let's look to Jesus with faith and trust and worship him regardless of the circumstances. Let's pray.